And good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. Are you doing okay? Yeah, a little, little less sleep than usual, a little more coffee than usual. It's good. Do you have your Bibles this morning? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is where you need to go. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Last week in our study, we saw Paul shift gears dramatically in this letter, a brand new section of the letter up through chapter 9. He's been addressing the repentant, reconciled majority of the church who has heard what he had to say to them in 1 Corinthians, heard what he had to say to them when he went to visit them, heard what he had to say to them in the painful letter, and they have repented, they have been restored, they have been reconciled to Paul, and he speaks with confidence about them, he speaks with positive words about them, especially in chapters 8 and 9, as he talks about the collection for the saints, Paul was very much positive in chapter 10, he shifts gears from that and begins to address the unrepentant, stubborn minority in the church who is still at odds with him, who is still causing trouble in the rest of the church, who is still an issue that needs to be dealt with, and you see a marked change of tone as we move into chapter 10. We talked about last week how we raise up in our own minds, uh, with the help of the adversary, we raise up in our own minds all kinds of obstacles to the gospel. Raise up ideas and ideologies and philosophies that, that are opposed to the gospel. And we talked about how even though we raise those things up, the gospel is powerful. The gospel is true. The gospel is mighty to come in and to break down all of those strongholds and to take all of our thoughts and all of our lives captive to Christ. And uh, that's a good thing. That may sound like an intrusive thing. But when Christ invades your life and tears down all of your worldly strongholds and takes your thoughts captive, it is the very best thing that can happen to you. I praise the Lord that he did that to me, that he invaded my life, tore down all my old worldview, built up a brand new one, took my thoughts captive to him, is taking my thoughts captive to him. It is the very best thing. We want that for ourselves. We want that for the people around us. We want uh, those kind of things to happen uh, in the world. We talked last week about the imagery that Paul uses is wartime imagery. It lends itself to the seriousness of the issue that Paul is addressing in the church at Corinth. I told you by way of reminder, we need to know that we are in a war. We need to know that this is not some, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, neutral territory that we live in. We, we don't live in a neutral world. We live in the midst of a war, and we need to know that, and we need to embrace that. I think even this morning is a great example of that. There are a lot of things against us this morning, don't you think? A lot of things against us this morning. A lot of us were up late watching a basketball game, game last night, right? And that was fun, but it's against us this morning. Because not only do we stay up late watching a basketball game, we lost an hour to daylight savings time. There are a lot of things against us this morning. And if we were to walk into this room as if, as if it's an average, normal, ordinary day, that there's not something against us, we would be taken off guard. And that was my point in talking to you about these things last week, was that you need to be aware that we live in the midst of a war. And so you can't just wander around whistling a tune. You can't just stroll around the streets like there's not an adversary against you. You need to know that we are at war, okay? The best news of all is that the war has been won. The war that we are in has already been decided. Christ is victorious, and he gives us victory by his grace. So you need to know that. You need to know that we're in a war, and you need to know that if you are on Christ's side, you win, okay? And you need to live like you're in the midst of a war. And you need to fight with Christ's likeness, 
with humility, with gentleness, and with meekness. We need to fight with the weapons he has given to us, the word of God and the spirit of God. We need to fight with those weapons, and we need to fight um, We need to fight for the sake of the people around us and for the glory of God. We need to fight. This week, we're going to continue talking uh, about the troublemakers in Corinth, how they are sticking around. What you'll see in the text today is Paul sounds really defensive and maybe a little bit self-focused, maybe a little bit arrogant as he talks about himself. And, and I want to clear something up before we get into the text. That's, that's not Paul. That's not the way he is. You know that about him. You know he is humble. You know that he is meek. And so what you need to understand is that there are a couple things going on why he talks this way. One of the reasons why he talks this way is that he is in a war, and in many ways he's the general in this battle. And one of the best strategies in warfare is to take out the leaders, right? And so Paul, as a general in this battle, has a big target on his back, and there are people that are going after him. And so he needs to defend himself against those kind of attacks. The other thing we need to remember is that for Paul and for the church at Corinth, the gospel is at stake in their relationship with him. Let me clarify this. If the church at Corinth were to reject Paul, that would, that would really lead to their rejection in a lot of ways of the gospel. If they were to say that Paul is not a legitimate apostle, if they were to say that Paul is not a legitimate authority, then that would delegitimize their own claim uh, of faith in Jesus Christ. Because after all, Paul was the one who originally brought the gospel to them, right? Paul was the one who was preaching in Corinth when an awakening happened. Paul was the one who is their father in the faith. And so if they deny Paul, in a lot of ways, they're denying the very gospel. So Paul is not saying these things just by way of self-defense. He's saying these things as, as uh, an effort to defend the gospel and to help out the people in Corinth. Okay, So Paul's not being selfish in this text. Everything he says, in fact, everything he does when he's with Corinth is for their sakes and for the sake of the kingdom. Does that make sense to you a little bit? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 to 11 is what we're going to look at today. This is what it says. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself. Just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that, we, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also in deed. When present. Let's pray together. God, we are uh, thankful for this gathering, and, and we recognize it's a battle. We recognize there's an adversary that hates this, that hates you and hates us because we belong to you, hates when your praises are sung, hates when your word is declared. We recognize that today, and we want to be aware of that, and we want to fight. We want to fight with the sword of the Spirit, with the word of truth. We want to put on the armor that you have provided for us for defense. We want to stay focused. We want to see you. We want to hear from you. And we need your help in all of this. We cannot simply approach your word as an academic study. We need revelation. We need enlightening. We need you to speak to our hearts through your word. And so we invite you to do that. Help us to set ourselves aside. 
Help us to stay focused and energized as we listen to you. And God, help us respond as we leave this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So in verse 7, my translation, the New American Standard Bible, says it this way. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. Uh, the word that is translated there in New American Standard as you are looking is one of these words in Greek that the different uh, tones, the different voices of it look exactly the same. The different forms of this word are all spelled exactly the same. And every once in a while there's a word like that, and we can't tell if it's an imperative or an interrogative or an indicative, and so we're completely left to the context. And this is one of those places, in fact, just about every translation, every modern English translation translates that word a little bit differently. So sometimes it'll look like a question, are you looking at things as they are outwardly? Sometimes it will be a command, you should look at things as they are outwardly. And sometimes it's simply an indicative statement like it reads in New American Standard where you are. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. Now, no matter how this word is translated, no matter how this phrase comes out in English, the point is the same. What's going on is there are a group of people in Corinth who have made a claim. They have made a claim that they belong to Christ. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. And Paul says what needs to happen is you need to look more than at that claim. You need to observe carefully the evidence of that claim. Does this make sense to you a little bit? That in other words, it is not enough, and this is going to be one of the main themes of our talk today, it is not enough to make a mere profession of faith in Christ. It is not enough just to say with your lips that you belong to Christ. If you really belong to Christ, there will be observable, discernible evidence in your life proof, if you will, that you truly do belong to Christ, okay? And if that proof is missing, there is a big problem, okay? So these guys who are false teachers, who Paul will argue in, in later texts, do not belong to Christ at all. That's not what he's going to argue today. But today he's going to say, open your eyes. Open your eyes and look. You need to look, not just at things as they are outwardly, but you need to really be doing some inspection of fruit in the life of these false teachers. There has to be more than a claim that you belong to Christ. If you truly are Christ, there will be proof. Look what he says in this verse. He says, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. At this point in the text, Paul is not going to argue explicitly that these false teachers do not belong to Christ. He'll do that later. What he is going to say is that, that he has every bit as much right to make that claim as they do. And then he'll say later on that there is actually proof. There's actually evidence. There's actually fruit in his life to back up that claim. But there is not fruit in their lives. Does this make sense to you? Most scholars believe that when he says, if anyone claims he is Christ's, is a claim of apostleship. It's not just a claim of discipleship. It's not just a claim of relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a claim of apostleship and authority. And we will apply it that way as it pertains to Paul, but we will apply it generally for us, right? Because we're not making any claims for apostleship today in this place, are we? I'm not. I don't want to get myself in trouble in that way. But we will make claims of discipleship. And if we make claims of discipleship, there better be proof in our lives to back that up. So that's the first big idea, and we'll talk about that more at the end. That if 
there is a claim to belong to Christ, there must be and there will be proof if it is a legitimate claim. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, Paul is going to continue to defend his apostleship. And this is what he says. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. Paul doesn't like to boast about this authority of his, right? A lot of times when he comes to town, he could make a boastful claim of his authority. Like in chapters 8 and 9, he could have said, listen, church Corinth, I'm your apostle. I'm your leader. I'm your authority. Give this much to the church in Jerusalem. He could have told them to do that. He could have demanded they do it. He could have commanded them to do those things, but he didn't, right? He came in and gently kind of brought them along, taught them how to think. He urged them. He begged them. Even in the text last week, that's what he's doing. He's urging. He's begging. He's pleading. He's working with them with a spirit of gentleness and patience. But he says, I do have that authority. Don't mistake my gentleness. Don't mistake my meekness. Don't mistake my patience as weakness or lack of authority. He says, I want you to know that I have this authority. That authority came from Jesus Christ himself, right? Who sent Paul to the Gentiles to take the gospel, did he not? Paul speaks with a great deal of authority, doesn't he? Paul wields a great deal of authority. And we need to be, we need to be appreciative of the way he uses that authority. The manner in which he uses it. He could just bark orders, but he doesn't. He brings them along very patiently. Paul doesn't like to boast about his authority. He doesn't want to seem like a self-absorbed leader. But we need to see that he's under attack. He's under attack. His apostleship is under attack. His authority is under attack. And so he will go on the defensive, not for his own sake, not for his own reputation, but for the sake of the people at Corinth. And I want you to know that, that sometimes that needs to happen in the church today. Sometimes there are leaders who are attacked. And a lot of times we think that the best thing for a leader to do is just kind of humbly walk away from the fight. Just kind of humbly back away from the fight and don't say too much and don't rock the boat. There's sometimes people will say, you have no right to preach to us. You have no right to lead us. And they expect a pastor or a leader just to kind of shrink back into the background. And that's not always the best thing to do. Sometimes it is. We've got to learn how to pick our fights. We've got to learn how to choose our battles. But there are times when, like what Paul does here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we have to say, no, no, I have this authority. I have been called here by God. He has given me this mission. He has given me this authority, and I will speak into your lives, and you need to listen. And that's basically what he does here is he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't like to boast about this authority, but if I'm going to boast, no, that this authority has been given to me for a purpose. Look what he says in this verse. He says, even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. It's so important. It's so important. As Paul understands his authority in the church at Corinth, it is not to lord over them, just like Jesus says, right? The Gentiles, their, their leaders lord it over them, right? They abuse them. But you, if you want to be first, you need to be last. If you want to be first, you need to serve those who are around you, right? He says, this authority has been given to me in the church for building you up, not for tearing you down, but for building you up. He says, I want to edify you. I want to build you up. I want to strengthen you. Paul loves the church at Corinth, doesn't he? It doesn't make any sense that he would love the church at Corinth, does it? Most of the time, they don't love him. Most of the time, they're nothing but trouble, but he loves them, and he wants to build them up, and he is speaking all these things, and he's putting himself through all kinds of suffering and hardships for the sake of these people because he loves them, and he wants to build them up. He speaks of his purpose in two different ways in this verse. He says, I've been given this authority to build you up positively, to build you up, and negatively not to tear you down. 
And it works the exact opposite with these false teachers that he's speaking of here, that he's addressing here. They are not there to build the church up, are they? These false teachers in Corinth, who do they want to build up? Themselves. They want to get rich. They want to live with great freedom. They want to have uh, great uh, prestige. They want to build themselves up. And what happens in the process to the church? The church is torn down. In the process of following these false teachers, the church is torn down. Paul says, the authority that was given to me was given to build you up, not to tear you down. And the false teachers want to build themselves up and tear you down. So Paul says this, this authority was given to him on purpose. Notice his confidence in that authority at the end of verse 8. He says, for even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. Notice how he starts. He says, if I'm going to boast a little bit, and I don't like to, and I don't want to, but if I am going to boast, I won't be put to shame. That's a, that's a pretty large amount of confidence there, isn't it? He says, I don't like to talk this way, but it's true. And test me, and you'll find out. That's what he's going to say at the very, in the very last verse that we're going to look at today. He says, you put this to the test, and you'll find out. You want consistency from me? You'll get consistency from me, and it will end badly for you. Paul, even though he wields such powerful authority, he deals with it gently. And he manages it well. And there are so many lessons for us in leadership from the life of Paul. Pick your battles. Deal gently with people. He is following, Paul is following the example of his Lord Jesus Christ and how he dealt with the authority that he had, right? All authority was given to him, wasn't it? And notice the way he dealt with people. He didn't lord it over them. He didn't boss them around all the time. He brought them along, gently brought them along. And it's a beautiful thing. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, for I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. It seems like the false teachers in Corinth have given Paul a pretty hard time about his letter, that painful letter in specific. In fact, in the next couple of verses, you'll see that they say, oh yeah, Paul's so tough. He's such a tough guy and he's such a strong guy and he has so much authority when he's miles and miles away and he's writing to us with a letter. But when he's here, he's a wimp. He's just a big old wimp, and they will cite the painful visit when he came to Corinth, and they attacked him, and no one came to his aid, no one came to his defense, and what did he do? He left town. He left town. They'll say, look, look, see, he's weak. When he's with us, he's weak. When he writes letters, he's strong. Paul says, ah, you've missed the point. You've missed the point entirely. In verse 9, he says, I don't wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letter. That painful letter, what was the purpose of it? What was the purpose of that painful letter? Go back to chapter 7. And you'll see, because Paul talks about it, the purpose of that painful letter where he called them out because of their sin, where he demanded discipline against those who have sinned, here's the purpose of it in chapter 7, verses 8 to 10. He says, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it for only for a while, for, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul says the point of that painful letter was not just to bring sorrow to you. He said, in fact, I regret that it did bring sorrow to you. But know that it only brought sorrow for a little while, and it brought the best kind of sorrow, because that godly sorrow brought about grief that led to repentance, right? Repentance, which leads to life, 
Worldly grief, on the other hand, just leads to death. Paul says the purpose of that painful letter was to bring about repentance in your life. And we know mission accomplished, right? Because it really did bring about repentance in the life of the church at Corinth. He says, I didn't write that letter to terrify you. I didn't write that letter because I don't like you. I didn't write that letter because I lack love for you. He says, I wrote that letter for your good. I wrote those painful words for your good to bring you around. And it was effective and we praise the Lord for it. He says, I wrote that letter because I love you. And Paul does love the church at Corinth. In fact, everything he does was for their sake. Everything he does was for their good. All of the things that the false teachers in Corinth accused Paul of were actually intended for their own good. When he supports himself, when he goes to Corinth, these false teachers would say, oh, he's trying to take advantage, or oh, he's not a legitimate apostle, because when he came to town, he didn't let you support him. He worked with leather, right? He, he made the tents while he was with you. And so if he was a real apostle, if he was a real apostle, he would have gotten rich when he came to Corinth, like the false teachers are trying to do when they come to Corinth. Why, though, did Paul work with tents when he came to Corinth? For their sakes, right? So that he wouldn't be a burden to them. So that it wouldn't seem like they were buying grace from him, but that he was giving it freely. When he, when he is weak and he suffers, what's the point of that? It's for their good, so that they will see the gospel working out in his life. When he changes his travel plans, another way they accuse him of being an illegitimate leader. When he changes his travel plans, it's all about them. It's all for their sakes. When he writes the weighty letters, when he speaks with simple gospel terms, it's all for their sake. And it's sad. It's sad that these guys turn all of these efforts that Paul is making for the good of the church at Corinth, they turn those into accusations against him. Imagine being Paul in that situation. Imagine pouring your life into a group of people, giving them everything you've got. And every time you do something, a group amongst that larger group says, oh, see, see, he doesn't love you. See, he doesn't care. See, he's not a legitimate apostle. That's tiring, right? It's tiring and it's realistic. And yet Paul continues to defend that everything he did, he did for their sakes. Look what he says in verse 10. This verse is so interesting to me. He says, for they say, that is these false teachers, these troublemakers in Corinth, the unrepentant minority, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Clearly the troublemakers are using his letters and his visits, his efforts in the church at Corinth to discredit him. They want to turn those things around and discredit him with those things. The interesting thing about this is that they're trying to do that in the lives of people for whom those letters and those visits were quite effective, right? Most of the church got it when Paul wrote to them and when he visited them. Most of the church heard him rightly. Most of the church repented and was restored to him. And yet these troublemakers are trying to come in and speak to those people and say, that thing that changed your life in such a good way isn't legit. That man who served and loved you so much isn't a legitimate apostle. It just seems like a weird tension to me as these false teachers try to convince the other folks in the church of, uh, of Corinth. I wrote in my notes, what a shame. What a shame it is that instead of hearing, repenting, reconciling, and being restored through Paul's letters and visits, these guys use those very things that were intended to bring them around as ammunition to attack Paul. These guys turn it all around and use it as ammunition to attack him. And I want you to know, and I don't have a ton of experience. I'm not, I'm not standing up here as the 70-year-old pastor who's been in it for 40 years and so I can speak from all this experience. I have a little bit of experience. And I've learned already this will happen. This will happen as you serve and love people in a church. 
this will happen as you serve and love people in a community. This will happen even as you serve and love the people in your own home. In your own home, as you make efforts to love them and lead them and teach them and sacrifice for them. Even in your own home, sometimes they will take those efforts and turn them around and accuse you with those efforts. And that is a hard thing to deal with, right? That is a hard thing when you are trying to love a child and sacrifice for a child and lead a child. And that child then turns around and says, I hate you for what you have done to me. When all of your intentions and all of your motivation was for their good, that can be such a painful thing. But don't give up. That's what I want you to hear. Don't give up because it's worth it, right? Don't give up because it's worth it. You keep speaking the truth. You keep serving. You keep loving. You keep leading because ultimately, in the end, it is worth it. That doesn't mean it's not painful in the process, though, right? Look at verse 11. Verse 11 might be my favorite part of this whole passage because I see in it the sarcasm, the wittiness, and the sharpness of Paul. In verse 11, he says, Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. The troublemakers in Corinth are calling for consistency from Paul. They have misinterpreted his gracious and merciful actions as inconsistency and weakness. Basically, what's going on here is that Paul is saying, you want consistency from me? You'll get it, but it's going to end badly for you. Because the way I wrote, the way I wrote in that painful letter is exactly the way I will be in person when I come to visit you if things don't change. You see, when he was there on the painful visit and got so much trouble, he kind of just walked away, just backed away and went away and avoided the situation, hopefully to bring them around by this letter. But he has made clear repeatedly that when he goes back, he's not going to operate that way this time. He's going to call for discipline and he's going to speak hard words. Go back to chapter 10, verse 6. Chapter 10, verse 6, he said this last week. He said, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Paul says, don't think. Don't think that it will always be mercy. Don't think that it will always be grace. At some point, patience runs out. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is not a new idea for Paul. It's something he shared with the church at Corinth from the beginning. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Start in verse 18. Let's start in verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. It's the same tone there, right? He says, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of the ways of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Listen to this. Now some have become arrogant. Back in 1 Corinthians, the same group of people was around, still dealing with them in 2 Corinthians. He says, but some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. It's the same idea, right? Not the words of these troublemakers, but the proof, the proof of their lives and the power of their lives. We'll find out. 
who's a legitimate authority. He says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. And then listen to this. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? What does he mean by come to you with a rod? He's going to beat them with that rod, right? Not, not, a, not a staff that will help him walk his way to Corinth, but a rod to whoop them with. And he says, it's up to you. It's up to you. How do you want me to show up next time? When I come back to Corinth, how do you want me to come to Corinth? You want me to bring the rod or a spirit of gentleness and love and patience? What do you want? Nobody's going to answer that. That's a dumb question, right? Easy question. I wasn't trying to trick you with that. They should desire a spirit of love and gentleness. And back in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, listen, I am a consistent guy. I'm a principled man. Consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. He says, you have mistaken. You have mistaken my grace at the painful visit. You have mistaken my mercy in the painful visit. You have mistaken my meekness when I came to you last time as weakness and lack of authority. You have mistakenly interpreted me as a wimp. And Paul says, I am no wimp. When I come back, what you have seen in my letters, you will see in my actions. What's his point in all this? Is he just an angry old man? An angry, ugly old man? I, I left that part out. There's, there's a great little bit in there about Paul's personal appearance. He's an ugly dude. And he doesn't deny that. Is he just an angry, ugly old man? No. He cares about these people. He wants the best for them. The reason why he says such hard things to them is because he loves them. And he wants them to come around. It's not just to make them sad. It's not just to frighten them. It's not just to make them sorrowful. It is to bring them to repentance. Paul wants even these troublemakers, even these unrepentant minority false teachers in Corinth, he even wants them to come around. That's what we should want for folks as well. We should desire, and what I'll tell you in a minute, is we should desire mercy. Certainly we desire it for ourselves, right? And we should desire it for the people around us. We should desire mercy and grace for the people around us. But we should always know, we should always know that justice will be done. That justice will be done. Righteousness will be upheld. Two applications today, and then we're done. Number one goes back to verse 7. He says, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. I want you to look at what's right in front of you. I want you to look closely at what's right in front of you. There should be evidence or proof to affirm our claims of spiritual life. Most of us in this room have made some claim to spiritual life, right? Most of us in this room have said, I belong to Christ. He has saved me. He is my Lord and my Savior. Many of us in this room have made that claim. My encouragement to you today in light of this text is look. Look at your life. Is there proof of that? Paul says, essentially in this text, anyone can make a claim. Even these false teachers that he is going to argue later on don't even belong to Christ. He says, they can make the claim. They can make the claim. I'll make the claim. We all make the claim. What good is a claim? What good is mere lip service? Paul says, look. Look. That's the one part of that 
that word that is easily translated. We don't know if it's, are you looking, or will you look, or you should look, or you are looking, but the point is, look. So one part of it is clear. It is observable if you belong to Christ. Look at what, what's right in front of you. Mere profession, mere lip service will not cut it in the kingdom of God. My warning to you is to apply this to yourself first. Apply this idea of looking for evidence to yourself first. We have a tendency in our flesh to say, that's an excellent point, Chris. I don't see a lot of fruit in Joe. <laughs> I see plenty of fruit in Joe. You get my point, right? It's easy for us to say, you've made an excellent point. If there's the claim to faith, there should be proof of that faith. And I'm looking around and I don't see much from the people sitting next to me. That's not the point today. That's a point for another day, and we'll talk about that. But the point for today, the application for today, is examine your own life. Is there fruit in your own life? If there is a root of faith, if there is a root of forgiveness and grace and reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ, if there is that root, there will be fruit on the tree. There will be. Jesus teaches this over and over again. That will happen. So my encouragement to you is examine the fruit. My other warning to you is to don't mistake the fruit for the root. You going to remember any of this? This is John Piper illustration. Don't mistake the fruit for the root. Don't think that your spiritual life flows from your works, flows from your obedience. Don't think that your spiritual life flows from those things that you do. That's not the way it works. Rather, the works flow, flow, flow from your spiritual life. Flow from the root of grace and peace and reconciliation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't get that backwards. So, look at what's right in front of you. There should be evidence or proof that affirm our claims to spiritual life. Mere profession and lip service will not cut it, and that terrifies me. There are well over a thousand members of First Baptist Church of Harrisburg. Well over 1,200 members of First Baptist Church of Harrisburg. Well over 1,200 people have stood in front of this group and professed faith. And I'm not saying that just because they're not here, that's not legitimate. But that's a lot of folks that we can't even see to see if there's fruit. It scares me. It scares me about how many people in our church may have made mere profession, mere lip service, mere claim to be Christ and have no fruit. But again, I warn you, don't spend all of your time looking out there. Spend your time today looking in here. Is there fruit in your life? Is there evidence? Is there proof in your life. Application number two is that we would desire mercy and grace and that we would pursue actions that bring about mercy and grace for ourselves and for others. The false teachers in Corinth are crying out for Paul to be consistent. Many people in our lives will call out for fairness from God. What the world needs is not fairness from God. What the world needs is mercy from God and grace from God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And the good news about the gospel is that in a crazy, 
amazing way, the gospel that is gracious and merciful and full of forgiveness is also completely just and completely fair and completely righteous, right? Because in the gospel, God doesn't just say, oh, your sin's no big deal. Don't worry about it. I just won't. I will just mark it off. No big deal. Is that the way the gospel goes? That wouldn't be fair at all, would it? That wouldn't be right. That wouldn't be righteous. That wouldn't be just. What is the gospel? The gospel is that you are a sinner, and that is true, and that sin must be punished, and that is true. The good news is God sent a substitute to take the punishment for you, and the wrath of God against your sins was poured out on Jesus Christ instead of you as your substitute. Amen to that, right? That is just and merciful and gracious. Love and justice meet at the cross where God punishes his son in our place. How do we receive? How do we receive that forgiveness? How do we receive that atonement? How do we receive that reconciliation that was purchased on the cross? We believe in him. We depend on him. We trust in him. And we repent of our sins. We submit our lives to his lordship. That's how we receive it. We don't work our way toward it. We don't do our way toward it. We trust. And he gives. He gives the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you run to him. And you call out to him, and you receive that gift today. Let's stand together and pray. God, we ask those of us who have made a claim of faith, a profession of faith in you, we ask that you will help us in this moment, as we sing this song in a minute, you will help us examine our lives, that you will shine a light into our hearts that you will show us the truth about who we are, that you will help us to see either fruit that affirms our faith in you and our relationship with you and flows from a relationship with you, or God, I pray that by your grace today, you will show us that there is no fruit, that there is no fruit, and what we need is a real relationship with you, not a profession of faith in you, but a real abiding relationship with you, a connection to you and a root in grace and peace and reconciliation from which fruit can be produced. God, I pray that you will either encourage us today as we seek you and serve you and love you, either encourage us today and affirm that we are in the faith or graciously and mercifully and lovingly break us today. Break us today and show us that we are not connected to you wreck us today and show us that we are distant from you and in that process Father I pray that you bring us to yourself that you reconcile us and restore us and give us real life God I pray for folks who are in here today for whom it is not a question they they clearly don't belong to you, expressly don't have a relationship with you. God, I pray that you will overwhelm them with the glory of the gospel and the beauty of the cross today, that they will see themselves as sinful and deserving of judgment, and they will see you as loving and just and gracious and merciful, that they will see Jesus as their substitute who took their sin upon himself and died suffering the wrath that they deserve and that they won't just see Jesus die for their sins but they will see Jesus raised 
victorious over their sin, victorious over the death that they deserve, victorious over hell that they deserve. God, I pray that the response of men and women and boys and girls to this truth will be repentance and faith and submission to your Lordship. God, that you will bring life, that you will give life that is eternal, and that you will be glorified in doing it. In Christ's name we pray.